Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. I assume you're staying warm out there. It's kind of kind of nippy, but we're glad that you're here tonight. And this is called the Spring Bible Study, but it sure doesn't feel like it right now, does it? So before we finish, it'll be the spring. But we're glad that you're here as we're looking at the book of Zechariah, a wonderful prophet of God, the longest of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And uh, we're looking at tonight at chapter 1, verses 7 through 17, which is the very first vision. He had eight visions. And um, uh, so this is the very first of those visions. Had them all rapid succession, all in one night. Uh, And again, the difference between a vision and a dream, dream you're asleep, vision you're awake. And so he was wide awake whenever he received these eight visions, and we'll talk about vision number one this evening. So let's pray, and we'll get started. God, thank you for your word tonight, for the power of your word. Lord, your word is life-giving. It is, uh, it's, it's you speaking to us, and I pray that you'll do that tonight. God, thank you for those joining us online as well. I pray that wherever they are and however they're joining us, that they too would feel your presence and that, God, your Holy Spirit would speak to them through these passages as well. Lord, we pray tonight that you would direct us in our thoughts and that you would be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, it's time for pop quiz. Are you all ready? All right. Ready to go. Seven questions again. This time, I'm not going to give you the answer at first. I'm going to, we're going to ask all seven questions. If you want to jot them down or think of them in your mind, and then we're going to see how many you got as we go through here. So... So this is uh, from the first two sessions, questions that, uh, that we have. So first of all, if you're watching online, jot down see how many you got as well. What does the name Zechariah mean? Don't answer out, write it down. What does the name Zechariah mean? So if you want to jot that down, and then we'll come back and see how many of you remember these. Question number two, what other prophet was closely associated with Zechariah? There's another minor prophet that was closely associated, ministered at the same time, prophesied at the same time as him. He's mentioned, in fact, together in the book of Ezra with him. Question number three, the name of Zechariah's famous grandfather. You remember this one, the grandfather. We don't remember his dad that well. Most likely he passed away, but his grandfather was a very famous priest ministered in the Solomon's temple, then captivity, and even, even back in the new temple. So he must have lived to a, a, a ripe old age. But what was the name of Zechariah's famous grandfather? Question number four, the two themes of the book. What's the book about? There are two things primarily the book is about. I'm getting a little more blank looks from that question than I was the first three. So th- two themes of the book. Question number five from last week. The first six verses of chapter one reveals the very first command Zechariah gave the people. What was the very first thing he told them to do? One word. Very first command Zechariah gave the people in chapter one. Question number six. What Hebrew word is used for the word repent or return I'll accept the Hebrew or the Arabic either one (laughs) what word is used for repent or Hebrew word for repent or return and then number seven the last one what does the phrase Lord of hosts mean 
Remember we talked about he's the Lord, he says he's the Lord of hosts. What does the word host mean and why would he call himself that when talking to God's people in this book? So those are the seven questions. Let's see, I bet some of you got all of them. We're going to see here. Number one, what does the name Zechariah mean? Yahweh remembers. You remembered. That's good. Yahweh remembers. Number two, what other prophet closely associated with Zechariah? Haggai. All right. Almost everybody knows that. The name of Zechariah's famous grandfather? Ido. That's right. I-D-D-O. If you said Ido, that's fine. It's Ido. But I-D-D-O was his famous grandfather who's a priest. Two, two themes of the book. What's the book about? Rebuild the temple. Start back at it again. And number two, the best days are ahead, not behind you. The glory years are still ahead, not behind you. Exactly right. And then the first six verses of chapter one, the very first commandment Zechariah gave the people was to repent. repent. Absolutely, repent. And what's the Hebrew word that you use for repent? Shuv or shub with a B or shuv with a V. Absolutely. Used a thousand and fifty times the twelfth most common word in all the Old Testament. And then what does the phrase Lord of hosts mean? Armies. That's exactly right. Lord of army or armies. That's exactly right. Who got all seven? Okay, we are a couple got all seven. Anybody get six? All right. Several of that five? Okay, that's good. That's good. I won't go beyond that, uh, but uh, that's good. All right. So we're picking up as we go through here. Very good. The first six verses of Zechariah and the introduction. All right. Go to letter A on your outline. The first vision. Vision of a horseman. Verses 7 through 17. Let me just kind of give you a little background before we get into actually verse 7. Remember now, all of these visions came on one night, the 24th of Shabbat. Um, it was roughly be our February 15th of 519 B.C. Zechariah received eight visions. We talked about that. This was three months after he preached the message of repentance. So between verse 6 and verse 7 of chapter 1, three months passed. So he gave them three months to repent. He preached the message of repentance, three months to repent, and then after that, God gave him three months to the day of vision, uh, eight visions, and the very first one. Now, what we're going to look at tonight. Now, we talked about the 24th of Shabbat being a very special day, significant day. It'd be like someone saying to us, 4th of July, well, we know what it means, or or 9-11, we know what it means. Somebody who doesn't know our culture may not know what it means. But whenever you said 24th of Shabbat, Jews knew what that meant. It was a very significant day. And it was significant because that was the day they began rebuilding the temple when they returned from exile. That was the 24th of Shabbat. So they considered that day to be a day God was happy with them. We've been obedient, we've returned, we're starting to rebuild the temple. That's a day that God has smiled on us, a day he's happy with us. Now think about this. In their minds, there weren't many days God was happy with them. For 70 years, they were in captivity. He was angry, that's why he sent them to captivity. And so in their mind, when you see a day God smiles on you after 70 years, you note that day. So the day they began rebuilding the temple was a day in their minds God was pleased with them because they were an obedient people once again after 70 years in their minds. 
So that day's significant. So whenever Zechariah says it was the 24th of Shabbat and I received these visions, they're thinking, well, this is significant. If he gave the visions on the day when God was happy with us again and delighted in us again, we need to listen to what the visions say. And so I believe that's one of the reasons that it, he, was, he told us, specifically verse 7, it was on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, that the word of the Lord came to me, the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, son of Ido. That's in verse 7. So we see why that is really significant. Now, all eight visions deal with one theme. God has purpose for Israel again. Your best days are ahead of you, not behind you. So none of the visions were fulfilled in Zechariah's day. None of them. So Zechariah prophesied and not a one of them came to pass that he saw. Now, I think that's significant because just because you and I do not see immediate fulfillment of God's promise doesn't mean he's not listening. Doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Just because you pray for something and God doesn't answer immediately does not mean he hasn't heard you. Zechariah didn't see any of these fulfilled, but they all were perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus. These visions deal with a coming king of Israel. We know him to be the Messiah. But God's saying there's going to be a king once again come to you who's going to reign with you and reign over you. And this is what encourage the Israelites to keep building that temple. You've got a king coming. Your glory days are ahead of you. So keep rebuilding the temple. You've stopped for 18 years. It's time to get back going again. Now, all eight visions, before we start looking at them, remember they all had a features that marked every one of them. They, first of all, there was an introduction to the vision. Then there was an explanation of what Zechariah saw. You'll, you'll see that pattern tonight. And then Zechariah says, I don't know what this means, God. Can you clarify? And then the vision would be explained. So all eight visions introduce what he saw and, and the introduction, explain what he saw. God, would you clarify? I don't understand this. And then the vision was explained. And so all eight of these were the same. And remember, all eight visions we talked about are chiasm. They're a learning device where, remember, the plane, it's going to help you as you remember and study all eight of these. The airplane, at, say, 30,000 feet, you see the earth, and it's very small. It gets lower, and you see countries, and you see the country of Israel. plane gets lower, you see the city of Jerusalem, and it gets even lower, and you see the temple inside the city of Jerusalem. And then it pulls back up, you see Jerusalem, pulls back up, you see Israel, and then you see 30,000 feet again. And that's exactly one and eight are the same, the 30,000 view, two and seven, the country view, three and six, the Jerusalem view, four, uh, visions four and five are the, the, the temple, the deal with the temple. So that will kind of help you to keep that envisioned as we look through all eight of these visions. So let's look now at verse seven, as I mentioned, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat. The second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ido. Now, as we talked about, the vision that he's about to receive is hope for downtrodden Israel. 
Israel is, remember that only 50,000 came back, everybody else stayed in Babylon, right? So 50,000 came back, they start rebuilding the temple, it's hard work, there's not much money to do it with, there's not much manpower. A lot of the older ones came back, they don't have as much strength as the younger men did. Younger men stayed there, they were making a good living in Babylon, so the older ones came back, you didn't have much manpower, you didn't have much money, then as soon as they got back you had a crop failure, you have a drought. You have enemies around you trying to keep you from going to work. And so Israel, the ones that returned, really low. I mean, they're discouraged. They're thinking, this is never going to get done. Israel's never going to be like it was again. God has simply forgotten us. Yes, we're home, but that's about it. So all eight visions are God saying, Israel, you're downtrodden right now, but there's a better day coming. I'm still with you, hadn't forgotten you, I'm still there. Maybe, maybe it's a message you need to hear tonight. Maybe you're discouraged or downtrodden, and you need to hear God saying, your better days are ahead of you, I haven't forgotten you. So that's what all eight visions center around. So now let's look at uh, number two on your outline there, what Zechariah saw starting in verse eight. I saw in the night... And behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. And behind him were red sorrel and white horses. Now let's stop there for a moment. Zechariah tells us what he saw, and it's very simple. I saw one man on horseback. He's riding a red horse, or what we know as a bay horse. He's leading other horses who have riders on them. And these riders are patrolling the earth and they're, they're riding through myrtle trees in a hollow or a ravine. The word literally means deep or a deep area, a hollow as we would know it. Southeastern Oklahoma, we call them hollers. Well, it was a ravine or it was a, it was a glen called here. They were patrolling the earth, these horses were. Uh, and the riders and the horses, patrolling the earth, checking on the nations, seeing how the world's doing, and checking on the progress the Israelites were making on the temple. Of course, they knew it hadn't been touched in 18 years. Laid the foundations, built the altar, and they stopped for 18 years. So the horses have riders on them, and the riders are angels. Now, Let's look at some of the details of the vision. This is kind of odd to us because we're going, what on earth? That's a strange vision. Now, the details that we're going to look at were, would have meant a lot more to that culture than it does to us. We look at it and go, that's, that's weird. That's a weird vision. They would look at it, the Israelites, and they would get more of it than you do and I do. So let's look at some details. First of all, you're looking, you say, why was it at night? Who was the man that's riding the horse? Why a horse? Why myrtle trees? Why a glen, a ravine, or, or a hollow? And why the color of the horses? So let's, let's look at some of these. First of all, why at night? Night was very significant in Scripture. Night was always a time of gloom, foreboding, 
and a time whenever you feel like God's not there. But the dawn represented God's presence. You remember the psalmist? Weeping endures for a night, joy comes in the morning. Nighttime represented darkness, evil, and God's presence. Now, even darkness in the New Testament represented those that did the works of evil, Jesus said. So, nighttime in Scripture represented a time of gloom, of depression, of foreboding. Light is joy, God's presence. Darkness is God's absence. So it immediately tells us he's riding among Israel who feels like God has left them. It is a time of gloom in Israel. It's a time of foreboding. Israel's not in a time of light. They're in a time of darkness. Now there are some scholars that believe that Zechariah, when he received the vision that night, was actually out on watch. And that was actually his call to ministry. So some believe, we don't know for certain. But remember, they had watches of the night. They would have people while others slept, they would have certain ones designated to watch, see if any enemies were coming. Ezekiel talked about it, a watchman on the wall. So they had that. And so some scholars believe Ezekiel, I mean, it was Zechariah rather, it was his turn on the watch. And that's when he saw the vision. Maybe, we don't know, but we, we know that he got the vision at night. And he said, I saw a man riding a, a red horse. Who was the man? Well, apparently, as we go later in the passage, the man was an angel of the Lord. Now, some people say, well, it was God himself. Well, no, the angel has a conversation with God later, so it can't be God himself if he has a conversation with himself. So it's, it's most likely, the, it says it's the Malach Jehovah, the angel of the Lord, of hosts, the army, remember. So an angel was sent out by God to scout out the world conditions and report back to God. Let's stop there for a moment. Does God still do that? Does God still send out angels to report on world conditions and report back to him what's going on? Well, it happened here. We don't know if it's a one-time event or not, but we do know that God has world conditions perfectly in his control. Now, tonight, you and I may look at world conditions and Ukraine and Russia and all that's going on around the world, and we may go, Lord, this is out of your control, that wild things are happening. No, 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 no. Things are still under God's control. And so he sent out this angel at night to scout out what the world looks like and report back to him. So the man was an angel of the Lord. Why a horse? Why is he riding a horse? Horses were significant in Scripture. They were instruments of war. Now, only recently, it was revolutionary when they were introduced in battle. For, for years, all the way back to the Egyptians, they, they pulled horses and chariots, but they weren't really used in warfare individually until around 900 B.C., so not too long before this. The Assyrians primarily the ones that had pioneered horses being used in battle, and it was a great advantage. It was an advantage over troops. You were up above the troops. You were on an animal faster than a human. Uh, you could maneuver quickly. You could go quickly. And so whenever they started using horses in battle, it was revolutionary. 
And it was better than the foot soldiers. And so horses were prestigious to own in those days. And so it's a reference that appears to be to the new battle high technology of the day that God was using with the angels. Now, some Bible scholars say, well, no, it was probably a reference to the postal system of the Persians. They had Pony Express. And they delivered mail by Pony Express. And so uh, some scholars say, no, it was just a reference to the Pony Express system that the Israelites would have known back in Persia. Maybe. But probably the warfare angle is most likely why he's riding a horse. Why the different colors of horses? He's riding a red horse and he's pulling other horses who are red and white and sorrel colored. Why the different colors of horses? Nobody knows. No scholars have ever ventured to guess. Isn't that odd that, they, that we'd be significant while they mention the colors of horses, but yet we can't figure out what they are? Some have tried to connect them to the four horsemen of Revelation. That doesn't work. That's eisegesis. Some have said, well, they represent the different angels are riding them. So they represent the different classes of angels. You have regular angels, you have archangels. And so one's on a red horse, one's on a white horse. Yeah, that's eisegesis too. There's nothing in scripture that ever hints at that. But some scholars say that. Dr. Wright says, any attempt to assign significance to the color of the horses is futile. We don't know. We don't know why the colors. Some say red stands for bloodshed because battles were going on and had gone on, and, and maybe so. And some say, well, the mixed colors because of mixed judgment and blessing, and maybe. But really the bottom line is, we don't know why. Je Revelation 6, 4 if you remember from our Revelation study, the red horse was the one that represented the Gentile world power that would be defeated. But there's nothing that points that back to here. So, I don't know. We don't know why the different colors are mentioned, but they are. Why the myrtle trees? Did you notice that? Israel's never called a myrtle tree, but yet it represents Israel. Why a myrtle tree? This is fascinating. Myrtle trees, uh, it's not insignificant that Zechariah saw Israel among myrtle trees. Myrtle trees were not the proud cedar trees that stood up like Lebanon, cedars of Lebanon that are stately, lofty, or not even the oak trees that were the far-spreading and very lofty oak trees, but they were the very lowly myrtle trees grew mostly in the shadowy, shady, dark places. But where was Israel in their history? Darkness. Shady. Felt like God wasn't there. So there in the back of the hollow, the glen, a little small myrtle tree that's not stately or not an oak, it's not a cedar it's just a myrtle that's in the shady, dark place. But that's where it thrives, is in the darkness. So God is saying, Israel, yes, you're in the darkness right now. Things aren't going well, but you're going to start thriving there. I'm going to come among you, and you're going to thrive again. But there's something else about myrtle trees. 
Whenever the blossoms are crushed, they produce this beautiful, fragrant smell. In Israel, a time in their life when they were crushed, and God's saying, there's still a beauty that I'm going to raise out of you, a Savior and a nation. It's going to be beautiful and fragrant again. Yes, the myrtles are dark and lowly, but when crushed, they produce beautiful fragrance. Now, you may say, well, that's, well, that's isogesis. Wait a minute, but hold on. Myrtle trees were used in the Feast of Tabernacles. It was the myrtle trees they used that pictured the coming of the Messiah, lowly and crushed, but would be the fragrance to the world. So that's why the myrtle trees were used in the Feast of Tabernacles. So it's significant here, he says, I saw them walking among Israel, the myrtle trees. And why in the glen, why in the ravine, the bottomland, a symbol of where Israel was, the depressed position of Israel in Zechariah's day, in fact, in Hebrew, it literally means sinking in the water. So if you can imagine a low place, a hollow, a ravine that goes down into a water, a pool or a pond, and maybe a little a myrtle tree growing at the very edge of that in the water, that was the picture of Israel. Lowly, sinking in the water, but where God is going to raise them again. So that's where he just began the vision. Let's look now look at the vision described, verses 9 through 11, number 3 on your outline. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? Talking to the angel. And the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. Verse 10. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Let's stop there now and see what the vision is describing. Verse 9, Zechariah asked the angel who was in his vision what the horsemen and the horses represented, and the angel said he would explain. Verse 10, the angel who looked like a man standing in the grove of trees said that the horsemen were God's representatives who had been sent to patrol the earth, like we talked about. Uh, back in biblical days, Persian monarchs would use messengers on swift horses to keep them informed on matters in the empire. So this wasn't unusual. They would send them out on horseback and they'd report back how are things going in the empire and that's how the emperor would know what's going on. So this concept really wasn't that unusual. Verse 11. The horsemen then reported to the angel that they had patrolled the earth and they had found everything peaceful and quiet. No wars, no battles, uneventful mission, everything's fine. Historically, they were right. Because in 520 BC, the Persian Empire was quiet. Darius had defeated nine rebel leaders over the course of 19 battles throughout his empire. He had subdued all of his enemies and there were no more battles or skirmishes 
everything was quiet in the entire empire. So they were right, historically. But we're going to see in just a moment, God says, wait a minute. Everything's not right. I'm angry at the nations. Why? There's no war. Nobody's being oppressed. Israel's free. Why? Why are you angry at the nations? And God would say, we're going to see in a moment, He would say, I'm angry because the nations are at ease while my people are downtrodden. The nations are at ease. And so when the earth is at rest at the expense of Israel, God's angered. Let me say that again. Think of today. When nations are at rest and Israel's suppressed, God's angered. Remember us talking in the study of Revelation. Though Notice those who side with Israel and those nations who do not side with Israel. In the end times, notice that. There's something about the nation of Israel, even to this day, God honors. It's still his people. Now, they reject the Messiah, not all of them. Some of them receive Jesus as Savior. He talks how they will be used in the end, at the, at the end times. But he talks here, those who side with Israel will be blessed. It does in Revelation. And here, nations can't be at ease when Israel is downtrodden and oppressed. Because that angers God. And so that's what he told them. Yes, there's peace throughout the kingdoms, but my people are downtrodden, so my anger is against the nations. Now, here's what Israel thought. They thought they had been God's people since Abraham was called in Genesis 12. They thought since they were sent into exile, God had given them up. And they were no longer his people. They thought, now that we're back in the homeland, and now that there's peace in Persia, no battles going on, everything's fine. Israel thought God has replaced us with them. We've sinned too much. His chosen people are no longer Israel. It's Persia. And so part of these visions... God is reaffirming, I will never give you up. You will always be my people. It doesn't matter how much you've sinned. You will always be my people. Your temple's going to be rebuilt. My glory's going to return there. My Messiah's coming. Your glory's going to return. You'll always be my people. But they were thinking Persia had replaced them. So they're really low. They're discouraged. And these visions are sent to be encouragement. Now let's look at the last portion and then we'll close verses 12 to 17. Letter, I run number four on your outline there. The vision explained. Verse 12. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, there's that army again. How long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? How long were they in captivity? 70 years. And the Lord answered, gracious and comforting words 
to the angel who talked with me. So, so get a picture here, verse 12. The angel of the Lord addressed God. Clearly, they were two separate persons. And he asked the Lord, God, how long are you going to remain intent on punishing Israel? The seven years of captivity, they're still oppressed, life's still hard. How long, Lord? How long? God answered the angel, but he didn't tell Zechariah what he said. Why? Zechariah didn't, he didn't know. He says, God answered the angel comforting and gracious words. Don't know what those words were. But if you could summarize the ministry of Zechariah, that's it. Gracious and comforting words. Because his almost entire prophecy is meant to be gracious and comforting to a people who are so low, so down and discouraged. Gracious and comforting words, and God responded with those. Don't know what those words were, but that's how he responded. Verse 14. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Zechariah, cry out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. Verse 15, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Let's stop right there. We'll look at verse last two verses in just a moment. Verse 14. So the angel, after God answered him gracious and comforting words, responded to Zechariah. And he said, Zechariah, I'm not going to tell you what God told me, but you need to proclaim God is still jealous for this nation. Jerusalem and Zion. Why would he mention both? Some think, well, it was just typical Hebrew parallelism, which is very common throughout the Old Testament. Or he could be saying Jerusalem and Zion, meaning Jerusalem in the past and Zion for the future. You've got a bright future, Jerusalem. It's going to be glorious. Could have been that. So he says, I'm still jealous for my people. Now, you and I think that's not good, right? Jealousy is not a good attribute. But jealousy is an attribute often ascribed to God. Does it mean God is sinful? No. Jealousy, when used as a description of God in Scripture, refers to his concern over his people and specifically his intolerance with them worshiping other gods. I'm a jealous God, he told Moses in Exodus 20. You are to worship no other gods. So that was, God did not want them worshiping other gods. It's God wanting to keep his people for himself. Now, divine jealousy has no negative connotations or sinfulness that's associated with human jealousy. It's a divine jealousy that he, he wanted his people for himself, not for them not to worship other gods. So that's why he said, I am jealous for these people. And then he continued, verse 15, to explain he was angry with the Gentile nations because they were at ease while his people Israel were low as myrtle trees in a hollow. Verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it. 
declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Now, what did he mean by that? Because the residents of Jerusalem, remember those 50,000 that returned, they had experienced so much hostility and they were so discouraged, God promised to return to them and show compassion to those people again. He promised that the temple would be rebuilt there and the city would again thrive like it is today. So that was the promise that he had made. I will return and I'll bring compassion to the people. Now, did he do that? Yes. You look at Jerusalem today. Jerusalem today is um, it's thriving. It, it has been destroyed twice. It's still thriving. It has been besieged 23 times. It's still thriving. It has been attacked 52 times in history. It's still thriving. One million people live there. It's one of the high-tech centers of the Middle East. Uh, unemployment is very low there. Almost everybody has a job. Construction is going. In fact, the, the joke that the tour guide says whenever we go there is you see all these cranes, construction cranes around. He says, it's the national bird of Israel and, and the crane. And because of all the construction, construction's at an all-time high. Prestigious universities dot Jerusalem. It is thriving today. And it's a part of the fulfillment of what God said in verse 16. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy and its measuring line will be measured over it. What does that mean? We're going to see a vision later on in a couple of weeks, a vision of a measuring line. But what it's saying is, look how vast and prosperous and vital this city has become again. So whenever you go to Jerusalem, you're seeing Zechariah 1 fulfilled before your eyes. The prosperous city flourishes once again. And then the last verse, verse 17, we'll close. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Hadn't chosen Persia, I'm still choosing you. And you will once again thrive. So vision number one, assured and comforted God's people that while the world was busy with its own affairs, God's eyes were upon the lowliest state of his people, the myrtle in the hollow and sinking in the water. And he sees a day when they'll rise again and their glory will return. And that day began when the Messiah came with Jesus riding in and the palm branches from the Feast of the Tabernacles being laid. So that wraps up our first vision. We'll go to vision number two next Wednesday night, the vision of horns and the vision of the craftsman. Let's pray together. If you have any questions or comments, see me afterwards or email me. I'd be glad to address those. So let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're a God who never gives up on us. You never give up on your people. Regardless of how sinful and how low we may be, Lord, we're still your people, and you still have glory for us in the days ahead. So, Father, I pray today, just as you lifted the eyes of Israel and the, the hope of Israel, would you encourage people today, lift our eyes and lift our hope to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.